What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? So what the hell is going on is we're doing something different today. We've had amazing guests on this podcast. We've had Pulitzer Prize-winning writers. We've had... President of the United President States. President of the United States, Secretaries of State, Nobel Prize winners. But we've never had a Grammy-nominated recording artist. We have today John Andrasik of Five for Fighting, one of my favorite musical groups. Though it's really not a group, it's him. <laughs> it sounds like a group with a name like that, but it's actually just him and his band. And he's written a song that was inspired by the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan called Blood on My Hands. He put this song out right around the 20th anniversary of 9-11, after the fall of Kabul, after our withdrawal from Afghanistan. After the terrorist attack that after killed the... 13 troops and hundreds of Afghans. And it's a really shocking and moving song. And I reached out to him and I went to see his show at the Birchmere when he was in here in Alexandria and got to know him a little bit. And I asked him if he would come on the podcast and play it for us and talk about why he wrote it. And he very kindly agreed to do so. And so, you you know, this is kind of a funny week for us because we're doing two podcasts this week. And we'll tell you a little more about the second one at the end. But for me, Afghanistan is not in the news as much as it should be, as much as it deserves to be. And I've been happy to watch that Congress, which apparently can't step up on almost anything, has actually really stepped up in pressing the Biden administration on not just American citizens left in Afghanistan, because, of course, they are the responsibility of the American president to protect, but also Afghans who helped us, people with special immigrant visas, translators, people who are instrumental in our troops succeeding in our troops staying alive. And I saw that our friend and former guest on our podcast, Senator Rob Portman, has said that there could be as many as 265 thousand Afghans, including these translators and these folks who supported us and their families who are waiting to get out. The fact that it's not on the front page anymore, the fact that there are now regular terrorist attacks that are killing people in mosques, in hospitals. I mentioned this in our discussion with John, but I'm so disgusted by people who profess to care about the rights of women and girls and to see that there are Afghan families that have to sell their children into marriage. Read that story that you just showed me before the show began. Please don't beat her. Heartbreaking moment, an Afghan father pleads with 55-year-old man as he's forced to sell his daughter, aged nine, to him so he can buy food. You know, is the story 100% true? I don't actually know because I don't know the journalists and I don't know the people involved, but I'm sure that there are versions of that story that are true. How can we let that happen? And then just if we recall the Biden administration and one of the many lies they told us about the Afghan withdrawal told us when they were leaving that they estimated there were about 100 Americans left behind in Afghanistan. Well, on October 30th, 
2021, Ned Price, the State Department spokesman, tweeted out, since August 31st, 346 American citizens and 245 lawful permanent residents will have departed with our assistance. Then a few days later, he tweeted out, we have facilitated the departure of 106 U.S. citizens and 88 lawful permanent residents. So we're getting into like the 400 range that they're acknowledging. There are thousands of Americans in Afghanistan. There have to be. And as you pointed out, to leave even one American who wanted to get out behind is just a national shame. But then you add to that these Afghan allies, people who risk their lives to fight the Taliban and to save the lives of American citizens, who we just left behind, and they don't have a blue passport that gives them any kind of protection against the Taliban. They are Afghans. They're Afghan citizens. They are now subject to the Taliban. They have no diplomatic protection. They have no claim to rights that an American left behind does. And we've left them behind. And not only is that a shame, but it's going to come back to haunt us one day because people around the world are watching this. It may not be in the front page of the news anymore, but we're going to be in a conflict again someday, somewhere. And we're going to depend on locals, nationals, indigenous forces, and local people to help our troops. And many of them are just going to not take the risk. And we have no idea how many Americans will die in future wars because somebody saw the way we treated Afghans who had risked their lives to help us and just said, you know what? It ain't worth the risk of helping America. And so I'm just going to stay on the sidelines. Sure. That is going to be one of the many, many implications of this. So... You're not here to hear us. <laughs> Maybe for once. You're here to hear a Grammy-nominated singer and somebody who, in our entertainment industry, who actually puts his money where his mouth is, who cares about the issues that other people just profess to care about. And is courageous in stepping forward and doing this because there's no reward in the music industry. There's no reward in Hollywood. There's no reward in Los Angeles for what he's done. But he's doing it anyway because the message is important. Amen. Here's our interview. Well, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. It's uh, been fun listening to you, and now it's fun to be on your podcast. Well, that's awesome. Well, first of all, as a hockey fan, Fight for Fighting is the best name for a musical act I've ever heard. Okay, wait, wait. Now, I, I confess. So I'm going through the research, John, and Mark is not a hockey fan, but a hockey fanatic. And I don't know what Fight for Fighting means. Tell me. Yes, as Mark knows well, back in the days, there was a lot of fighting in the NHL. And because you're a bad boy, you have to go sit in the timeout room, the penalty box, for five minutes because you were fighting. So it actually, uh, it's kind of funny how the name came about. It was the late 90s and the male singer-songwriter was dead, I'm told. And it was the age of Lilith Fair and boy bands and grunge rock. And they said, John, you need a band name. And I said, really? They said, oh, yes. And I'd just come from a L.A. Kings hockey game, and Mark will remember two big brawlers, Marty McSorley and Bob Robert, two big fighters, (laughs) and they had done their little dance, and I sarcastically said to the record company, well, how about Five for Fighting, expecting them to hate it, and of course, they said, oh, we love it. Like, not knowing, like Denny, not knowing what it means. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it sounds like we should be opening for Metallica. This is a male singer-songwriter playing the piano. and But, you know, here we are 20 years later, fight for fighting, and I'm still at L.A. Kings fan. Mark, who's your team? New York Rangers. All right, and all I right. I hate well, the Kings. You beat us in the one chance we had at the Stanley Cup since 1994, so... Uh... Don't mind me, yeah, guys, sorry. while I have a nap I wish, here. I wish I, could, I wish I could say I wasn't at that game watching uh, Alec Martinez score on one of my favorite goalies. But, uh, yes, you got your Messier Cup, so it's not all bad. So why Mark's It's also here. a great name <laughs> for a band because you really are fighting for what's right right now. 
and you've written this song, Blood on My Hands. Tell us a little bit about the song and how it came about. Yeah, you know, I had no intention of writing this song or I took no joy in putting it out. I think listening to you on your podcast, I mean, you guys have talked about it a lot, about our initial shock at the images coming out of Afghanistan with people falling from planes. It kind of reminded me of, of 9-11, some of the horror images we saw and the mothers throwing their babies over barbed wire. But I really didn't start creating any music till our 13 soldiers were killed and the 100 Afghans. And I was just angry. And like many artists, when you're angry, you just go bang on your piano and kind of more of a cathartic exercise. Still had no intention of writing a song, but when our final troops left Afghanistan, I got a call from a friend who's done amazing humanitarian work around the world her whole life. And she said, I need a contact because I'm organizing evacuations of AMSITs from Afghanistan. And I'm such the dumb singer. I'm like, what's an AMSIT? And she said, American citizen. And there was a pause on the line. And I finally said, are you telling me you're risking your life to go rescue American citizens we left behind? And she kind of choked up. And that night I started writing some lyrics, still wasn't sure where the song was going, but the song really finished itself when the president gave his extraordinary success speech. Like all of us, I was kind of stunned and didn't know how to absorb or process that. But I still had a feeling that our generals would hopefully clarify that. I've spent my whole life performing for the troops. I have great respect for our military. I love our veterans. And I've always expected them to be straight shooters. And I expected Millie and Austin to come out and say, look, let's clarify this extraordinary success. And they didn't. They came out and echoed the same political narrative of, wow, we had a great airlift and look at all these things we've done, knowing that it was a strategic debacle that actually Millie admitted later. And I realized that it was a political exercise, not a military one, a humanitarian one. And that scared me because I thought of the repercussions beyond Afghanistan. If our generals are going Orwellian, can America survive that? So I wrote the Millie lines, the Austin lines, the Blinken lines. They all wrote themselves. I recorded it the next day and put it out. Before you perform this, you performed this last during your show. I saw you at the Birchmere in Alexandria. And you give a little explanation to the audience before you play it to prepare them for it. Could you tell us what you tell your audiences? And then could you play the song for us so we can talk about it? Yeah, sure. I, I think it was important to give context to the song. To me, the song is a moral message. Initially, it was kind of two mission statements to write the song. It was to keep Afghanistan kind of on the front foot, to recognize that we had broken America's promise. We had broken it to our American citizens. We'd broken it to SIV holders. We'd broken it to our Afghan allies that we promised to save, to take care of. And we left them to the Taliban. It was important to me to keep that on the front foot in the media with the song. The other was accountability that we had not seen. And when I talk about the song before I sing it, I talk about my friend and I talk about the fact that my friend is now risking her life to rescue Americans that we've left behind. That is not political. It's a moral message. And I also say if President Trump was president and we were in this situation that I would write the exact same song and only the names would change. And I think when I say that, I think people listen differently. I think they maybe put their tribalism aside for a second. And I ask them to please listen to it in that frame. And then I play the song. And so here's, a, let me move over to my microphone here and I'll give you the acoustic guitar version of Blood on My Hands. Got blood on my hands Blood on my hands 
these hands They're still Americans Left her the Taliban And he, he, he Now how's that happening? Wicked blinking can't you look me in the eyes? Willie Millie, tell me when did you decide this will defend your sacred motto now means never mind. Hands got blood on my hands. Got blood on my hands. Flag of the Taliban And he, he, he Over Afghanistan General Lawson Is there no honor in shame Can you spell Bagram Without the letters in blame Did Uncle Joe Take a trip in your veins Hands I can't hear her scream If she's not, she's not She's not on TV And I can't hear him scream If he's not, he's not He's not on TV. He, he, to every Afghan ally that we left behind, every child who wants no freedom, faces covered and blind is for this American promise. Now, shit in the fire. Just one American And he, 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 he Asking What's John, that was great. Just a a really moving song. And I think for a lot of us who were just devastated by this decision on the part of the president, you know, we recognized that there was some momentum in making this bad decision from the Trump administration. And what I really appreciated from you was this was really not about 
who the president is or how he was chosen. This was about a choice that he made and that his military leaders and national security leaders chose to go along with. But there was a question I wanted to ask you, because your community of entertainers has always been, you know, at the cultural hustings, always fighting the fight for things that people in California believe in. It was striking to me that you were the only person who really spoke out. Where's your community? That's a very good question. And I've been asking that question, especially within the music press. I mean, you're right. There's been a great history in this country of protest songs, speaking truth to power. And a lot of the usual suspects who kind of stand on their soapbox and talk about oppression and talking about women's rights, talking about gay rights, crickets. And one reason I wrote this song was because no one else was saying it. And it's just another depressing example of how deep our tribalism is, because people know the tragedy, the great shame of this. And the fact that no other songwriters or very few are writing songs about this great, I would say, national shame and tragedy. When to this day, we still see stories, you know, I talked to my friend today about there was a wedding a couple of days ago in Afghanistan and a bunch of people were killed because they were playing music. Now, you would think that would be something that Rolling Stone might be interested in. There was a folk singer, Fawad Andarabi, folk singer. He was kind of like their Springsteen. He was murdered by the Taliban early in the early days. You would think the music press would have that person on their cover. It's just another example of how tribalism has destroyed our moral conscience. And I also think if, you know, we know that if Donald Trump were president, there'd probably be 20 of these songs. And if I wrote this song, maybe I'd be preparing my Grammy speech. And that's just dangerous for our republic. And we see it in so many aspects of life. I won't get started on our politicians who love to talk about, you know, the persecution of women and minorities when we're seeing the greatest women's rights disaster setback in modern times, who, again, are crickets on this. So it just kind of shows me, and I think it's a good example to all of us, that a lot of this social justice posturing has nothing to do with human rights and bettering people's circumstance. It's all a power play to secure power. And it's, again, it's very depressing, but maybe this will allow some other songwriters and artists to feel comfortable to step up. And I think we're seeing that. It's not just Let's Go Brandon. It's other songs that have maybe a more serious tone that are calling out our government. And the arts have a way of doing things that no other medium can. And it's not just because I wrote a song, but I saw with Superman how a song can provide solace for so many, can make a point more than 10,000 speeches. And I hope Blood of My Hands does a little bit of that. I'm seeing that with a lot of our veterans who feel angered and ashamed. I'm seeing that with a lot of our active who are afraid to say anything because they'll get court-martialed that they now have a song like this that kind of speaks their pain. And I think for some of them, it's cathartic. And I hope there's more of these. I completely understand that it's cathartic. I just wish that more people heard. You know, one of the lyrics in your song really spoke to me because at the time that this happened inside the Beltway where Mark and I lived, there were conversations about how this wasn't going to hurt Biden because it was going to be just a couple-day news story and how it wasn't going to remain on people's screens. And you have these beautiful lines in the song, I can't hear her scream if she's not, she's not, she's not on TV. And that's right, of course, we can't. It is as if the news media and the people who are responsible for telling us what goes on in the world have taken aside. They don't care about 
her screaming. They don't care about the little girl I told Mark about this morning who was sold at the age of nine by her father to pay for food, if you saw that. And it's just terrible. No, I think I think I should give a little credit. You know, I think initially the media kind of did a decent job, right? The first couple of weeks. While it was happening. Yeah, while it was happening. I think they actually, for the first time in a long time, acted like uh, unbiased player. It was interesting. As soon as our last soldier left, all of a sudden, most of them went radio silent. Now, no, not all of them. There's still a few reporters doing a good job. But right, as a unit, we moved on. And I actually think the Biden administration was actually rather savvy because they came out right away with the vax mandates that even all the conservatives wanted to talk about. So I think that helped them. But you're right. We live in a culture that unless you see it on television, unless the New York Times writes about it, it's not happening. And again, that's very disturbing. And I look at it as our job, my job, to do what I can to keep Afghanistan in the light. And you know what? It's not just about the tragedies of people selling their children. It's about the people being murdered. There's also an incredible American story happening. I know you had Elliot Ackerman on your show. I actually listened to your podcast and I've communicated with him. And I was talking to someone on the ground yesterday running the evacs. And he said to me, he goes, you know, this is America's greatest moment. It's not the government's greatest moment, but all of the private citizens who are down there performing these evacs and risking their lives and getting people out and impersonating the Taliban who've drained their bank accounts, who've quit their jobs. That is an incredible story and should give hope to all of us who are really depressed about America 2.0. And we will tell those stories. I have another video coming soon. I actually, the day after the Birchmere concert, Mark, that uh, we had a nice time at, I decided to go wander down by the White House and maybe play a song. So, you know, we, we, uh, we have some things coming. We're also talking about some documentaries to really show the American soul that these folks are doing. The girl that I wrote the song about, I talk to her every day and she has some horrifying heartbreaking stories. And she has some incredible uplifting stories. And they're not quitting. They're exhausted. (laughs) They haven't slept in two months. But there is a silver lining to this that I think America will one day hear. And I think it'll give us a little more hope and frankly, expose the administration too. It's not only people who drop the ball. I'm sorry, I'm ranting, but I talked yesterday, you know, the State Department is blocking a lot of airplanes to go into certain nations. There's only two they'll allow. And I asked one of these folks from the AFAX, I'm like, why would they do that? What rational reason? Why would they be blocking evacs of American citizens? There's 30 on this person's list to various countries. And they said, you know, they're embarrassed that we're getting credit for doing their job. And that's how cynical and disgusting people in our State Department are being. And that's another story that needs to be told. So I'm just looking at a tweet from Ned Price, who's the State Department spokesman. This is from just a few days ago. And he says, we facilitated additional departures from Afghanistan this week, including American citizens, lawful permanent residents, and Afghans with whom we have special commitments. Since August 31st, 346 U.S. citizens and 245 permanent residents have departed with our assistance. I recall them saying that there were 100 or less Americans (laughs) left behind in (laughs) Afghanistan. And apparently we've evacuated 345 and we're still going. You know, some of these other groups have gotten out like 10,000 people, right? They're not all AMSITs, but, you know, allies and soldiers. The other thing they're worried about, too, Mark and Danny, that was interesting is 
a lot of these groups are focusing on Afghan fighters because they realize that there's two options for these people. Well, if they don't get killed, one is get them out now or they're going to flip and they're going to be fighting against us. So there's so many tacits to this story. And yes, the State Department and Blinken have been a disgrace. I actually tweeted yesterday, journalists, if there was a story about the State Department blocking American citizens' evacuations to various countries because they're embarrassed about their political failing, would that be something you'd want to write about? You would think so. And you would think in a Trump administration, they'd probably be already getting their Pulitzers. But again, it just goes to show that this kind of tribal malignancy that's affecting our country in all aspects of our media, of our politics, and even our kind of, as I said, our heart. When I saw you play it live, one of the things that struck me is you sent the quartet off stage before yeah. doing it. Why did you do that? It's, you know, it's cancel cultural world. My friends and I quartet, they all work on Broadway. They're in a, an environment that is hostile to any non-radical left viewpoint. Most of them are liberals and some are very left and they're my dear friends and I love them like my family. And I don't want them to be canceled. I don't want somebody to post the performance of blood on my hands and there they are sitting there. And in this age, whether it's passive or active, they could lose their livelihoods. And again, we keep talking about these things, but it's sad I have to do that. But in this world, that's the reality. I understand you asked your daughter for permission before yeah. putting the song out. No, yeah. Uh, you know, my daughter, <laughs> she's at a, a very liberal school, basically pursuing her dream and loving it. And she's worked her whole life for this. And I know the fallout. If her dad does something, we have the same last name. And I said, look, here's this song. I don't want you to be in a position where teachers are bullying you or you, you kind of get ostracized. You've worked so hard and I won't put it out if you don't feel comfortable with it. And I don't know if I've ever been a prouder dad. You know, she said, dad, if somebody wants to give me a bad grade or not give me a, an audition or a role because you're speaking something that is important and frankly lines up with her values of women's rights and gay rights <laughs> that she's very passionate about. I don't want those teachers and I don't want those friends. I was so moved by her courage. And again, the fallout to me is not going to change my life, but to her, it could. So I give her a lot of credit and I just spoke to her and she's the best of the best. And I can, you know, she's I'm, a well brought I'm up girl, daddy, but the, she is. You mentioned Superman earlier. You were central to the concert for New York after 9-11. And you wrote this big hit, Superman, which was about 9-11. That was nominated for a Grammy, played everywhere. How has this experience been different from that? And obviously, it doesn't look like this has yet been nominated for a Grammy Award. Is that because of the <laughs> it, politics? Is that because this is a song about shame, whereas Superman was about a common experience we had? Is it that people don't want to confront shame? Because it's a national shame. It's not just Biden's shame. It's America's shame. I think there's a lot of components. I mean, first of all, this song will never have one spin. We sent it to 400 media, music media outlets. Two people talked about it. So the music industry will shun this song because of who's in power, where if it was flipped, as we said, there would probably be 20 of these songs and my song wouldn't be heard because people much more famous than me would have their songs. I do think shame is a big part of this. It's easy for us kind of in the center and the right to say, well, the media is not talking about it because they want to help Biden. And there's certainly a component to that. But you said shame. I think the whole Afghan issue, the shame of leaving Americans, the shame 
of leaving our allies. That's something that hits to the root of our national conscience. And what happens with shame, right? When you're ashamed, you don't want to talk about it. You want to look the other way. And it takes courage and time to kind of come to grips with what you did and admit your complicity. And once you get to that point, I think you can start to heal and atone for it. Now, we may have to wait for a new administration for that to happen. But I do think shame plays a big part in why Afghanistan is being pushed off the news and kind of out of our brains. It's much easier to fight about the vaccine and pronouns and climate change than look at Afghanistan and see, as you mentioned, Danny, children being sold so their parents can survive, murders, atrocities every day, especially for women and children. Nobody wants to see that. And I think nobody wants to listen to my song. I think a lot of people listen to my song once (laughs) and they're like, okay, nobody wants to listen to blood on my hands over and over. Superman had that kind of universal, at the end of the day, we're all human. And it didn't have such a kind of dark tone. And I understand that. I don't like to play it every day. It doesn't uplift you where Superman maybe puts you in a different space. But I do think it has a similar reach about making people think. And when I play it, you know, when you saw me play it live, I've never had that experience, that intensity of an audience on something that's so heavy. Superman certainly provided solace and meaning for a lot of folks, but it didn't have that weight. And it's really, as a songwriter and a performer, it's something I've never experienced. And I actually feel the significance of it. And that's why I keep fighting this fight and trying to get every veteran to hear the song, because I know for many, it'll help them. This is not your first outing either. Yes, of course, Superman was epic and came at a very important juncture for America. But exit question from me. You did another song after 9-11 that I really appreciated as well, a song called Tuesday. I wonder if before we say goodbye, you could tell us a little bit about Tuesday and you could play it for us. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Tuesday is a deep, deep cut we talk about in the business. Very few people know it. Though this year, it seems to have been requested a lot. I don't know if it's the 20th anniversary or not, but of course, 9-11 occurred on a Tuesday. And a few years after I played Superman at the concert for New York, you know, that experience gave me a lot of relationships with first responders and our troops and some folks like you too, in kind of the pundit world and the thinkers. And I saw a few signs a couple years later that we were starting to forget those lessons of 9-11. So I wrote a song Tuesday, and Tuesday really was a plea to let's not forget those lessons. Let's not forget why we're here, why we were attacked, how we were attacked, how naive we were. And just this year, you know, with the 20th anniversary, when people would call me and say, hey, I need a version of Superman for this news item or this charity, people would ask for Tuesday. And I thought to myself, hmm, is it the sentiment that maybe folks feel we have forgotten the lessons of 9-11? And I certainly think with Afghanistan, (laughs) considering Al-Qaeda and ISIS are regrouping, maybe Tuesday will be more relevant in the coming years than it is even now. And I fear blood on my hands will too. But Tuesday is a song that's close to my heart. For you Billy Joel fans, you'll hear the Billy Joel in it, at least in the music. (laughs) So, uh, let me uh, let me move over to my piano here and uh, here's Tuesday. One year like any old other year 
lying down Fast asleep People do what people do Love and working and getting through No portraits on the walls Of 7th Avenue The Tuesday came and went Like a helicopter overhead The letter that she left Gold addressed the September when will she come again? The thing about memories, they're sure and bound to fade. Step for the stolen souls left upon a plate. This Monday coming back. Turn around Afraid to see it through Tuesday came and went Like a helicopter overhead The letter that she left Gold addressed in red Tuesday came and went One, one September when Will she come again? John, thank you so much for playing that. I sense that if we had heeded the lesson of Tuesday, you would have never had to write Blood on My Hands. I think it's because we've forgotten the lessons of 9-11 that we experience what we experience and you had to write this song. I'm sorry you had to write it, but I'm so glad that you came on our show to play it and spend this time with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. And thank you for your podcast. It's been really helpful in me kind of educating myself and connecting with people like Elliot and uh, team effort more to come and kudos to you for doing the hard work on your side. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. So Danny, I'm really glad we're doing this podcast. I'm glad that John joined us because the media has moved on from this story. I remember after weeks of writing about nothing but Afghanistan, I finally wrote my first column about something other than Afghanistan, and I felt guilty about it. Right. And so we've made a pledge with this podcast that we are, you know, we always again do every podcast on Afghanistan, and there are a lot of other important issues facing the country and our national security, and we're going to talk about all those, they're political issues. But we're going to keep coming back to this during the course of the year. We're not going to turn away our eyes. He says, if you can't hear her scream when she's 
not on TV, well, she'll be on our podcast. We will make sure that we stay on the story and keep you up to date so that you know what's really happening and the ongoing and unfolding consequences of America's shame in Afghanistan. And a warm thank you to John Andrasik, five for fighting, for having courage and commitment to things that matter. If you can be instrumental in helping one person, it's worth it. So at the front end, I teased the fact that we're doing two podcasts this week. Actually, we're doing something pretty exciting later this week, something Mark and I have long wanted to do, which is we're doing a live podcast before an audience of actual human beings that will be in a room with us. And our guest in this really politically consequential off-year election week, our own state of Virginia, but also New Jersey, Ohio, a bunch of other states have elections, and a bunch of uh, states have elections at the school board as well. We've got Amy Walter. I don't even need to give Amy's bio, but for those of you few who don't know, she's the publisher and the editor-in-chief of the Political Report with Amy Walter. She was named one of Washington's most powerful women in 2021, and I'm beyond excited to do this event with her this week. It's very exciting. And look, I remember when we first started this podcast, we didn't know anything about podcasting. We still probably don't know anything about podcasting, but we're getting better slowly through trial and error. But I remember one of the first things we said was, we're going to do a few podcasts, and then let's do a big launch party, and we're going to do a live podcast at AI <laughs> Studio. And this was yes. in early 2020. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic hit. It wasn't supply chain issues. It was it, COVID. It was COVID, <laughs> One exactly. of the excuses and of so the that day. Put off that, that put off that dream. And Instead of doing it live in front of an audience, we were doing it by Zoom from our lockdowns for so long. We're finally clawed our way back into the AI studio with thanks to the vaccines. And now we're finally going to do that live podcast with a live studio audience that we have been hoping to. So we hope you enjoy it when it comes out. Take care, everyone. See you later in the week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.